Hi, this is John Mulder, Executive Director of the Trillium Institute, along with Jason Beckrow, welcoming you to Palliative Matters. We are palliative doctors who treat patients and families who are dealing with difficult medical circumstances, and we'd like to share what we have learned along this journey. How are you doing today, Jay? Doing wonderful, John. Yourself? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good day. Feeling good, feeling strong, and looking forward to sharing uh, some thoughts with uh, with our listeners here today. And I had a, I had a thought that I just wanted to see if this um, uh, kind of resonates with you and something we might talk about today. I'd gotten a text earlier today about uh, a friend of mine's friend who was going to be admitted to hospice. And it was apparent that there was a lot of distress in this, in this mm-hmm. process. And it, it sort of reminded me that, you know, as much as we talk about hospice and as much as we are immersed in it. I mean, I've been, I've had my toe on that water for 37 years that not everybody necessarily appreciates really what it is and what the value is. Have you encountered some of that yourself? Well, of course, not only uh, lack of awareness sometimes, but, uh, but fear too. Oh, sure. Uh, For most folks, the concept of hospice care is introduced when someone is in fact dying. And that's a very scary time, a very vulnerable time for our patients and their families. So, so absolutely. And yeah. to shed light on that and the why uh, we engage in this work and the, um, the benefits, uh, would love to talk about that. Well, let's dive in with, uh, with a story. This still resonates with me and it happened over 30 years ago. I was covering for our local emergency department. This was kind of before the days when we had hospitalists in the hospital and those of us who are primary care docs would cover when someone came into the emergency department and didn't have a community physician. So I happened to be covering the ER that one particular uh, evening and got called about a young man who was there that needed to be admitted to the hospital. So I went down and he was, uh, we're going to call him Tony. And I went to see Tony and he was in his young 20s, about 23, 24. And he was disruptive. He was vile. He was rude. He just was not a pleasant guy to be around. And this apparently had been his demeanor for quite some time. He had alienated family, friends, his uh, medical relationships. He burned so many bridges that there just uh, was nothing but water underneath him. You know, that form on the admission sheet that says next to kin, who to call an emergency, that was left blank. He'd made a lot of decisions in life that really had alienated him from uh, all those that were close to him. And he was now in the emergency room with end-stage AIDS, and he had had every complication that you can imagine from AIDS. And I know that in your career, you've seen a lot of that. He had the tumors that were growing. He had infections in his lung and in his urinary tract. He was experiencing this intractable pain. He would breathe in and shudder because it hurt to breathe. He was extraordinarily emaciated. His eyes were sunken in the back of his skull. And he just had intractable nausea and vomiting. He just was a miserable person in every dimension that a person can exist. And so I, I, I felt bad for him, but uh, you know, I knew that we, there were some things that we can do. And he looked at me kind of glaring and he said, you know, I know what's going on here. Just give me Kevorkian's number and we can be done with it. And I said, well, I, I, I'm not going to do that. Um, I, First of all, that's illegal in the state of Michigan, and, and I, I would love to see you feeling better, and I'd like to admit you to the hospital. He was resistant to that, but it was really clear that we sort of had the upper hand right here, so we were not going to be sending him out in his 
current state of misery. We did bring him into the hospital. And of course, we were able to get his pain under control relatively quickly, got his nausea and vomiting under control. We were able to get his infections, uh, begin to treat those with some antibiotics. So within about 48 hours, physically, well, you could just see he was breathing more comfortably. He was breathing easier. He, he was still just as nasty and vile as he was when he came in, but at least physically he was feeling better. And I told him it was time for him to leave and that I wanted to send him out with hospice care. He was adamantly resistant to that. And I said, well, perhaps I was a little paternalistic, but I said, that's not going to happen without hospice. You want to go home, hospice is going to be by your side. So he really was anxious to get out, so he agreed. And what happened then was just a, a wonderful testimony to what hospice really does. The nurse worked with me over the subsequent weeks to keep his symptoms managed. Pain was controlled, it stayed controlled, and he physically was comfortable. And I would claim that he was healing physically. Now, we need to quickly acknowledge that healing and cure are two very, very different things. He had an incurable disease with his end-stage AIDS, so he was not going to survive that. But the way that his body was able to accommodate that so that he could have some modicum of function and he had a lot of comfort, I really felt that that was an expression of some aspect of physical healing. Social worker had a really big job to do. She was able to track down his mother, a sibling, a friend, and really began to work with this young man to knit back together some very damaged relationships. But she was very skilled at doing that. And it was really kind of interesting and rewarding to see these relationships being reconstituted. He was healing relationally. And in the process of that, he was healing emotionally. Not unexpectedly, this was a young man who had long since abandoned the faith of his youth. And the chaplain stepped in and began having conversations with him about the relevance of God in his life at this point in time. And you started to see some spiritual healing going on in this young man. So in every dimension, we started to see the benefit of having hospice engaged with this young man. And I remember going out to see him, it was just before he died, actually, a few days before he died. I looked in his eyes, which were still very sunken, but now they seemed to sparkle a little bit. And he looked up at me and smiled and he said, you know what, doc, this has been the best six weeks of my life. And wow. I reflected on that and thought about, you know, the ER just wanted to get rid of him, right? Cause he was such a burden on them. And I think would have been happy just to send him out to a nursing home or send him back home. And in either circumstance, I think he would have died a miserable death a lot sooner than he did. And certainly without the opportunity for healing. Mm -hmm. And that story, in my mind, just really emphasizes what a good death can be and the power of hospice in helping people to reconcile broken things and to really come to a point of contentment and healing in their life before they die. John, you said this happened over 30 years ago, is that correct? Yeah, 1991. And yet you remember it, at least in your mind, um, it is vivid in, in bright technicolor. It is a memory that has stayed with you for a significant part of your career. Uh, every detail. Yeah. I can see his face. I think that really speaks to, again, the potential and the benefits of care. To your point, your patients, the concept of cure versus healing, 
a lot of the folks that we'll be seeing and caring for long-term survivorship just may not be physically possible, but how one lives with the time that they do have, that is highly, highly variable and can be so positively impacted with the benefits of hospice care and our colleagues. Like you, I saw very early in my career, in fact, I was a fourth year medical student and I was just ready to graduate. And I still see these patients in my mind as bright as if I'd seen them just yesterday. And I was at a point in my career where I was considering going into pulmonary and critical care medicine. And I spent my second to last rotation before I graduated from medical school in the ICU and absolutely loved it. Had a great month, put in all sorts of lines, did procedures and was absolutely wonderful. And then the last two weeks, it was uh, recommended that I do two weeks in hospice care. And I'll be candid up front. I was, I was very hesitant because of my understanding that hospice is where people go to die. And I just spent almost four years of my life learning how to keep people alive. And it seemed counterintuitive, but I'm grateful that the person who encouraged me to do that was persistent. And so I signed on. And what I noticed over those two weeks was that the outcome for my patients in the ICU and on the hospice floor was oftentimes the same, that they passed away. But how they got there could be so, so different. This was right around Easter time when I was on the hospice rotation. And I keep thinking of this gentleman who had end-stage COPD, and he was dying of COPD. And his primary goal to get closure at the end of his life was to decorate Easter eggs with his grandchildren. And I remember it was coming toward the end of my rotation. And I think it was the Thursday before I was done. And the grandkids were there. And my mission was to go to the store and get some uh, egg coloring kits. Long story short, he decorated those eggs with his grandchildren. And I can still see the smile on his face. He passed several days after that, you know, perhaps on Easter Sunday itself. But he died with a smile and having that time with his grandchildren. And now to think that, gosh, if they were 10 years old then, that was over 20 years ago, they're young adults themselves, maybe with children of their own, and tell that story of the time that they spent with their grandfather. And that just really, really impacted me that if we all accept eventually the reality, the, the 100% of our own mortality, how we get there can be highly variable. And that to me is the beauty of hospice care. All of our patients are forced by nature of their diagnosis to think about their mortality in a way that most of us do day to day. But when we do, and when we learn to take advantage of the time we have to make the most, to gain that closure with our families, to reconcile. How many times have you seen families to varying levels of function and dysfunction come together at the end of one's life? We've seen the opposite too right? The disease itself doesn't cure these ills. It only magnifies. Very skilled colleagues in hospice care, our chaplains, our social workers, our nurses, helping nudge patients and their families in those directions to allow that healing to occur. It can be truly magical, and it's why it's such an honor to participate in this field. It really is. And we have shared stories in other episodes of our podcasts about how the values of individuals has motivated that decision making and how the terminal journey 
gives them a chance to really crystallize what in fact is sacred to them. And then how the hospice team then steps in to really help to bring those dreams to life and how to really capture those values into the plan that they put forth for the patient. And I think that's the beauty of hospice. I think that there's still in some corners is this sentiment that, oh, you know, you put someone into hospice and just hold their hand, give them morphine and wait for them to die. But it's quite the opposite. Our goal in hospice is to maximize their engagement with family, friends, and community, to maximize their comfort and allow them to live and to live well. And isn't it amazing, John, when we really just break it down, how simple oftentimes the request of our patients are. I mean, it is not like, let's get the whole family together and fly across the world and, and, and do some magical journey. Oftentimes, I can think of families getting grandma in the car one more time to go see the lights at the holiday time. Family events, weddings, and uh, births of grandchildren and great-grandchildren, graduation ceremonies, just to go for a walk one more time and feel the fresh air and sunshine on one's face, to go fishing one more time. Very, very incredibly meaningful for our patients. And what an honor it is for us to be invited into that. And then how does that affect our own lives to help us hopefully appreciate what seems very simple on the surface, but is so incredibly meaningful. There was a few years ago, an elderly patient, uh, well into his 90s, who was pretty much completing his life journey here in hospice and pretty debilitated. But his goal, he really wanted to be able to play golf. He loved golf. That his kind of his recreational mm-hmm. social life revolved around playing golf. So the family got an idea. You know what? They put him in the car, a couple of family members on either side of him, walked him over to the putting green, put a couple of balls down, putter in his hand. And as he putted and watched it go into the hole, they can't remember the last time he had smiled so broadly. I had another one, a, a young girl who was 13 and had a very rare type of mitochondrial deficiency that had really made her functionally paraplegic. She was pretty much bed confined and she ultimately became ventilator dependent, but she cognitively remained fairly intact. And what she was able to communicate, the one thing she wanted to do was go to the beach. She just wanted to go to the beach one more time. Well, she was in an area of middle Tennessee where there were no beaches, but the family arranged, they knew some that had a pool. And the family was willing to, to bring in a few yards of beach sand. And they kind of dumped it on the side of the pool and they put her so in they a, they brought the beach to her. They brought the, well, and then they, yeah, they put her in an RV and drove her over and, you know, it took mm-hmm. a few people to get her out and into a supported wheelchair and let her dangle her feet in this pile of sand next to the water that they had created. That's what hospice was able to do to help her realize that one more time. And again, the smiles, the contentment that you see on their faces and know that that reflects a warming of the heart, that someone loves them, someone cares about them, and someone understands what's important to them. Yeah. When you think about, again, the patient has since passed on, but everyone who loves that patient that's still with us, they remember that story. Those are the things that will live on and help. Again, our patient's will pass on, but their loved ones remain. And how they deal with their grief journey is oftentimes so hugely impacted on the care they did, or sadly at times did not receive at the end of their loved one's life. 
And again, our hospice teams so gifted and so talented and so helpful in helping write that story as positively and as beautifully as is as possible. And when you hear those stories being told for generations, that's when your team knows they've, they've done good work. Right. So I hope this clarifies what hospice isn't and what hospice can do for patients and their families. I think that a lot of people are aware what it can be, what it can be. Absolutely. And a quick reminder of what it takes for eligibility for people to actually be able to be in hospice. Again, the reality is that most people in hospice do in fact die within a few days of being admitted to hospice. But the benefit says that if you have something that we cannot fix, in other words, something for which there is no curable option or some option to allow people to live longer. So in essence, having a terminal disease, that if the disease runs its normal course, we would expect death to occur within about six months. People are not in hospice for six months. Average across the country is about six weeks. And so people are missing opportunities to be blessed in that way and to have that element of resource to help to support them through these times. Some of that is fear. People fear of what it means to be dying. In other cases, it is the sense somehow we're caught in this trap that we can't get out of. And if we don't like it, then we're, we're sort of stuck. And I always like to remind families, no, this is, this is a set of resources that comes into your life when you have something we can't fix. Mm-hmm. And life is short. And if you decide that it's not for you, then we can always back away. It's not a, that's not a problem. It's always surprising mm-hmm. to me how infrequently people take themselves out of hospice because they so realize the benefit of having that. How many times, John, have you heard the opposite? Holy smokes. I wish we would have gotten here a lot sooner. Absolutely. To your point, uh, your patient, this was the best six weeks of my life. So many times, had we known that this is the level of care we would have received, we would have come here sooner. And again, that's where I have, over the course of my career, and John, I'm sure you have too, seen things are changing. And those things change when a person may be at midlife has an experience with their loved one at a later stage and sees the beauty. And now they go forth and can tell their family and friends on the beauty of the care, the potential of the care. To your point, sometimes I think there's a fear that enrolling in hospice is quote unquote, giving up. And over the years, what we've learned is what are we giving up? Oftentimes the disease itself is spreading. Sometimes the treatment's worse than the disease itself. I mean, keep in mind, I come at this from an oncology background where it's a very important question that I ask, at what point does the chemotherapy we give become a greater cause or burden for the patient than the disease itself? It's not a subtle question. It's not an invalid one. What we're trying to give up on are those things that keep you from your goals and trying to then accentuate those things that will help you get there. When that fear can be allayed, again, some magical things can occur. You know, I've had uh, docs who will come to me in the past, and this happened more than once, uh, in which they say, boy, I've got someone I'd like to refer to you, but I I don't want to take their hope away. And I will ask them, well, what Mm -hmm. hope is it that you're talking about? Well, the hope that they're going to get better. And I said, do you mean like cured better? Well, yeah. I said, but they can't. Why Why would you put 
that expectation and that opportunity onto someone when it clearly is not possible. They have no understanding of hope. And, mm-hmm. and I would kind of direct listeners to one of our podcasts in the series about hope because we talk in more detail about that. And so we do have to change the narrative that hospice is not giving up on life. It's not giving up on anything but shedding the things that no longer are important or that matter in life and focusing on the things that do matter and the things that are important and the things that are meaningful and sacred to you. We talk a lot about, you know, if time is limited, John, where would you rather be? Stuck in my waiting room or with your friends and family doing the things you like to do? I hope well, you wouldn't yeah. want to be stuck in my waiting room. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I like you, Jay, so I wouldn't mind be stay, being stuck in your office, but not your waiting room, for sure. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, no offense. I'd rather be with you and Lisa hanging out than uh, stuck in a waiting room. <laughs> Amen. Amen to that. Yeah. Well, this has been great discussion, and I know that we'll have other opportunities to talk in more detail in other podcasts about hospice and, and its relationship to the care that people deserve and can benefit from at the end of life. But for now, we'll call an end to this episode. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of the day, Jay. Thank you very much, John. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Once again, this has been Palliative Matters, and we look forward to having you join us on future episodes. Have a wonderful day.